Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers. Please buy a copy or two. Denny needs to eat. That's right. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and finding a way to check it out. All right. And on today's episode, we're going to handle some of your feedback. We're going to go to the pub. We're going to talk some stuff happening in the brewery and some things that you should be reading, along with getting to a couple of your questions and all that sort of fun stuff. It's just a Danny and Drew show today, so no lounge. We're busy. Let's go. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to have to listen to us talk all the way through. But before you have to do any more of that, please sit back and take a listen to the messages from the people who make the show possible. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, publishers of Zymergy Magazine, organizers of HomebrewCon, and enjoyers of homebrew. Join your friends in fermentation at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Thanks for sticking around. We want to start off with a few announcements to let you guys know what's been going on. Yeah, and our first announcement is, if you weren't paying attention, episode 105 of The Brew Files dropped in your feed, where I'm talking with Eric Gomez and talking about how he went from being never having brewed in 2018 to becoming a part-time professional brewer for the first time here in 2021, and how he got there and what his tips and tricks are for actually also making sure that you win as many medals as he's been winning. So go listen to that episode 105 of the Brew Files, going pro in Orlando. Yeah, man. If uh, if that's something you want to do, then that's a good thing to listen to, and uh, you can rest assured that uh, you won't have Drew and me competing against you. There you go. All right, and don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA, Amazon Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is. It is Project Freedom Ride. Uh, they're an organization that works with dog rescue uh, people in both Texas and Georgia to truck dogs up here to the Pacific Northwest to new homes. Uh, I've mentioned before that uh, my dog, Britain, was a, uh, a recipient of uh, Project Freedom Ride. That's how oh. she got here. And don't forget, and, also an occasional guest star. <laughs> That's right, yeah. She's sleeping on the floor here. If there are a deer that shows up outside, you'll be hearing her bark any moment. At any rate, Project Freedom Ride is a great way to help our doggy buddies. So uh, please click the Patreon link on experimentalbrew.com, give us a few bucks, and we will pass it on to them. And uh, another announcement that uh, is not quite as happy we had been uh, hoping to go to Houston for the Dixie Cup and uh, to Denver for the Brew Your Own Boot Camp. But because of the way things are these days, uh, I'm afraid that we won't be doing either one of those. 
So uh, hopefully we'll be out there on the road again soon and we'll be able to see a lot of you people and sit down and have beers together, but not quite yet. And now, of course, it's time for one of our favorite segments of the show. It's time for your feedback. feedback. That's right. It's time for feedback. We've asked uh, for a couple of y'all's responses from various things that we've talked about, and we got a couple of things coming in. So first off, talking about the grain bags and the all-in-one systems. So you guys will remember in the last show, we had talked about how Anvil was now partnering officially with the brew bag people to make a brew bag specifically for the foundry. Uh, and, you know, I'd, I'd just casually asked, has anybody done that? Well, it turns out, yes, you guys have, because a lot of you wrote in. Um, a couple of responses that we had out there, uh, Niels Rad from Stowe had said, uh, my history with homebrew with an electric brew in a bag system was inspired initially by James Spencer of Basic Brewing Radio and the Warthog system he has from High Gravity Brew. I didn't have the money to invest in that specific system, and I tend to see how I can save money by piecing together a similar system myself. I got an electric controller a guy in Wisconsin was making on eBay, a large kettle, and put a heating element in the bottom, made my own stainless steel cover for it so I could seat a brew bag in it without scorching, and use that for many brews. Over time, it just seemed to too many pieces, so I got the Anvil Foundry to have a smaller footprint, and I've loved it. I got a brew bag for two main reasons. One is that I've been using one for a long time and liked it, and two was because I occasionally use wheat middlings. Thanks for the inspiration. Uh, what Niles is talking about is, uh, what, two years ago, I think we had uh, Phil on to talk about making use of middlings in beer. Yeah. Uh, so you can t- totally go back and listen to that episode. It's a very interesting idea. And he said, uh, going back to Niles, he said, I found that the brew bag does well with that fine of an ingredient. The one thing I did find confusing at first was that the brew bag advertises the larger mesh bag, 400 micron, for use with these systems. But I really like the smaller 200 micron one more since it's more flexible and not as stiff. Hope this helps. Cheers. Thank you, Niles. I, I do think that's in, interesting, the 400 versus 200. Uh, I'm wondering if some of that's just because of the weight of the, the fact that it's all columnar. And they just want to make sure that they have plenty of flow room down the bottom. Um, so Ben Smithson in Dallas says, I've used a brew bag with my foundry for about 30 brews. I got a lot less grainy bits in my boil, which is fine, I guess. I mean, I haven't noticed a major change in quality compared to the no bag method. I like being able to get all the bits away from the system and into the garbage easier. And with a grain bag, I can almost guarantee that I won't get any parts potentially clogged, like a spigot, pump, or hose. All in all, I appreciate the simplicity of an all-in-one system. My brew day is faster. I have my running on 220 power. I'm jealous. And I can set a delay timer to heat water and just have it ready at temp. It's way safer and less burn risk for me and my family. Step mashes are easy. Post-boil hop stands at specific temp are doable, too. Other handy add-ons I use, a stainless steel hop spider. I like those. A spin cycle no-drill whirlpool arm. Hmm. Great for speeding up chilling time, great for recirculation during a hop stand, and a better magnetic drive pump that works at a higher temperature than the pump that comes with the foundry. I've heard that before from other people about the foundry as well. So, uh, and then we also had a couple of other comments. Uh, Mike says, I think I recalled you asking on the podcast if any use, anyone uses a brew in a bag with a malt pipe. I have an anvil to an, a 10 and a half gallon, and I use the brew bag inside the malt pipe. I was using this bag in my standard 10 gallon round igloo cooler mash done prior to going to electric brewing. For me, it works great. I can double crush my grain, stir as often as I like, and not have to worry about establishing a grain bed. Then when I'm ready, I can lift the malt pipe up, hook it up to the side of the anvil to drain. Wort is nice and clear and cleanup is easy. And then one last one comes from Isaac Ramsey. I'm one of those people that use a bag with a mash and boil. 
I don't do it because of grain getting through. It just makes cleanup easier. I get them on Amazon, though, instead of the brew bag people because they're so much more expensive. I could deal with it if it was like a 10 to 20% markup, but they are like four times as much. Isaac, I know the brew, uh, brew bag people are expensive, but I'm I'm going to vouch for the quality of those damn bags. They are good. Yeah, they are really good bags. Yeah. So that was a, ham, a handful of feedback. So it sounds like for most people, yeah, okay, some clear wort. That's nice. But a lot of people really leaning in on the idea of like just easier to clean up, dude. So. Yeah, and you know what? I was trying to think. I don't think you could actually do that with the grain father because, the because they have that uh, recirc tube coming up the middle. Yeah, I was thinking about that as I was reading it. You'd have to do something special to accommodate for that tube. Yeah, now now you, you could, could do that with you, with the G70 if you had a bag that big. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, I, I can't really say much about the new G40 until after uh, until another couple of weeks or something. But uh, that would probably work there too. Yeah, I'm just kind of curious if you could. And it seems to me that you could probably run the G30 without the the tube. Um, you you can, but it, it really helps to maintain the mash temperature. Oh, but still, you you could do it if you took the tube out, but then I've never done a, a mash in the in the G30 without it, so we'd have to say. And I, you know what? And I was I was absolutely wrong because the G70. Now that I think about it, does have that tube coming up it too. So, uh, you know, and having having uh, accidentally plugged my tube on the G70 recently uh, with grain, uh, I I did get some scorching, so. Uh, that's why that tube is there to help maintain the temp and the recirculation. But that would also mean that you couldn't use a brew bag with it. So on the other hand, I haven't found any reason I would need to use a brew bag. Just interesting. You know, different different techniques. I agree. No, I, I think that if you have a system where that improves it, then that is absolutely the right thing to do. And like, like I said, uh, not a paid sponsorship, no, no, no sort of kickbacks going on here. But I do find that the quality of those brewbag.com uh, brew bags to be really good. Um, yeah, I was I was real pleased when I used it. They're very heavy duty. Uh, they've got little lifting straps on them. Uh, good bags. Yep. All right, and then the last bit of feedback. Remember, I talked about in the vanilla episode and after the vanilla episode about getting some leak-proof lids uh, for your ball, for your mason jars, and I I use. Uh, Ball or Cure, whichever one of the companies, they make these little white lids that are designed for dry storage. And I'd use those for years, except for the problem is they're not leak proof and they do, you know, kind of of lose alcohol out the side, shall we say. Um, And I just switched over to using these gray lids from Ball uh, that they call their leak proof lids. And so far I've had really good luck with them and the lids from Brewing America that we also had mentioned as well uh, for holding in the alcohol while making my tinctures. But uh, we had uh, Craig come on our website, and he wrote, I've been using the dark gray ball leak-proof plastic lids for about a year. Unfortunately, many times I have grumbled that they should be called seal-proof. Maybe if you really crank on them, they'll seal. They're fine for many uses, but at least in my experiences, they're far from leak-proof. So that's just an alternate take on those gray ball leak-proof lids. Uh, But I will say, if you're worried about that, the Brewing American lids are definitely (laughs) leak-proof. You know, and I had the same experience as Craig did with those, and I have found that the white ones, at least for me, seal much better than the gray ones. Oh, you're high. I've, ne- I've, 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 <laughs> no, I've never had that experience with those white ones. Oh, God, the white ones are terrible. Yeah, see, and I've, I've, I don't, can't remember ever having a white one leak, and I cannot get 
the gray ones on solidly. As a matter of fact, I like using the gray ones on the uh, jars from my sourdough starter because they don't seal and that lets the pressure release. I'm going to have to see these gray lids that you're using because the ones I'm using are beefy as hell and I can't seem to get yeah, anything around the, them. The, they're, the, they're the same ones. They're the official lids. You know, these are not like knockoffs or anything like that. So. Hmm. Maybe maybe I'm just lid challenged and I don't know how to put them on right. There you go. I'll, I'll take that. Lid challenged. <laughs> and speaking of lid challenged, I'm now thirst challenged. All right. I guess that means it's time to head over to the pub. Stick around because when we come back, we'll be talking about the beer life. The Brew Deck Podcast features exclusive interviews with your favorite brewers and suppliers. Each episode highlights new trends and brewing tips from leaders in the industry to inspire your next brew. Listen to the Brew Deck Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. New seasons bring new brewing adventures with Y-East's Belgian Summer Private Collection, featuring 3463 Forbidden Fruit, 3942 Belgian Wheat, and 5151 Britannomyces Classenae. These premium liquid yeast strains bring you the opportunity to enhance your skills and elevate your experimental side. The dynamic fruitiness, spicy phenolics, and complex esters balance well with the malts, hops, and specialty ingredients of Belgian styles. For an adventurous twist, add seasonal fruit and berries, or try Brett C with its tropical tartness in your next creative fermentation. These strains are available now through the end of September. Visit yeastlab.com for homebrewing recipes, tips, and more about which styles pair best with these strains. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome back. We have strolled over to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere, somewhere in cyberspace, and we're drinking some beers. Uh, Drew, what are you having today? I'm having a Dankersham IPA. A what? Dankersham IPA. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> What does that mean? The Dankersham IPA is from a brand new brewery uh, called Lawless Brewing. 
And it opened up not too far away from where I used to live when I first moved to L.A. And that area is famous for having a street, a very big street that runs up and down the the, the north-south side of the town there uh, called Lancashire, because the whole place used to be the Lancashire Ranches. And so Lancashire became Dankersham, and it's their Dankersham IPA, and it is a classic West Coast IPA with Citra, Simcoe, and Amarillo. Not a hint of galaxy, not a hint of mosaic, no tropical fruits, just pine and citrus, about 6.6%, just classic bitter bite, and not as bitter as like the you know older school IPAs, because I think a lot of West Coast IPAs have still sort of moved away from that many IBUs. But just a little bit of a throwback and very, very tasty. And that's the Dankersham IPA from Lawless Brewing. Yeah, man, that sounds great. Oh, yeah, it was tasty. I, I, mowed, uh, I mowed a four-pack down before I knew what I was doing. <laughs> pay attention, pay attention. It's going to be a theme in this episode, I think. Yeah, right. Pay attention, indeed. Uh, words to live by. All right, and for you, sir. I am having a pills from our good friends at Freem up in Hood River, Oregon. Uh, they make a variety of styles, uh, and every one of them is just stunningly good. It doesn't, I mean... A lot of breweries, you know, kind of like focus on one particular style or something. Freem does everything, and they do them really, really well. This is a great pills. Uh, it is made with uh, Gambrinus and Wireman Pilsner malts, Carafoam, and acidulated malts. It is hopped with Pearl, Saphir, Tetanang, and Spalt Select. And for yeast, they just say lager. <laughs> Uh, and if you're interested in trying to uh, brew this beer, uh, Dave Carpenter's excellent book called Lager has a recipe for it, which I haven't tried yet, but I intend to. But their website is a, an interesting example of uh, purple prose, I guess you could call it, uh, when they get into the beer description. So I wanted to read this to you and, and try not to crack up. Shines brilliantly gold with fluffy white foam. Aromas of fresh grass and spring flowers. A touch of lemon zest quaffs from the glass. The mouth fills with zesty spiciness. A touch of honey and finishes crisp, snappy, and refreshing. Okay, the crisp, snappy, and refreshing. I definitely agree with that, and it it really is. It's a great, great beer in that respect. But a touch of lemon zest quaffs from the glass. Something tells me they mean wafts, and they got kind of carried away with their uh, their own brilliance, I guess. <laughs> yeah, purpleosity. <laughs> uh, anyway, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of of using slightly poetic descriptions when you're trying to describe a beer, but this one just gave me a real chuckle. Yeah, it definitely sounds like somebody went to uh, a wine writing school. Um, yeah, and, and and it sounds like that they had seen wine reviews, but they didn't really know what some of the words meant. Yeah, but I, I mean, the times in the past that I've had their pills, I've really truly enjoyed it. So it's a damn fine beer. I mean, oh, it, it is a great pills. Yeah, man. Actually, I don't uh, think I've ever had. They any, make a f- I don't think I've ever had anything from them that I didn't like. No, no, I I, I would agree with that. Uh, during my uh, my stop in Hood River, coming back from uh, Hop and Brew School a few years ago. Uh, Jeff and Susan Rankert and I spent uh, some time there in one afternoon trying a variety of different things, and everything was just stunningly good. Yeah, that's unfortunate that they're so good and yet so not available around me. Mm. <laughs> 
Well, you know what? You can order from their website. That's true. And speaking of breweries that are so good, but actually available just about damn near everywhere, Sierra Nevada, this is very weird. I've only seen one mention of it so far. Maybe this is still embargoed and it hasn't been really released. And there was just like one mention of it got, you know, sort of escaped into the wild. Sierra Nevada is apparently going to release the Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, everybody's classic favorite, in a bottle that is 101 ounces. More than three quarts. More than three quarters of a gallon. That's a lot of Sierra Nevada Pale Ale in a single glass. Yeah, it is, man, but it's not unheard of. There are a lot of Belgian beers that get released in big bottles like that. Uh, I remember uh, a few years ago seeing um, um, uh, Doggy Claws from Hair of the Dog in, in a same bottle. And just to let you know that that's not really out there, that's a Jeroboam, uh, you know, it, it holds three liters of wine called a double magnum also. So it's nothing that they just made up. Oh, these, no, no. these are out there. Um, it happens, and, you know, it, it's, it's a great public relations publicity kind of thing. Uh, if you're having a party, it's a great thing to bring out at a party and blow people away. Uh, well, I mean, I used to always go for like the, the Jeroboams of like Duval or like some of the big Belgian beers like out there. But I mean, it just seems like, you know, big bottle glass has sort of fallen off so far that it's just very strange to see like Sierra Nevada doing it. And then Sierra Nevada also doing it with pale ale and not like Bigfoot or, you know, like something big. Cause I always think with those big bottles that it's like, Oh, this is the extra big celebratory thing. So we'll put the special beer in here. But then again, Sierra Nevada pale ale is special. Yeah, it is, man. And they've done it with celebration in the past, which is a, a special beer. Uh, I, I think it's an interesting thing. I don't know if I'll be running right out trying to find one or anything like that, but, uh, you know, if, if you're looking for a little novelty beer thing, uh, that's a good one to check into because it, Sierra Nevada pale ale is stunningly good. Always. always. All right. And then we've got a couple of lawsuits that are happening mostly around investors. And I think there are sort of two different takes, one of which I think is utterly absurd, but it's just interesting to see. So a couple of weeks back, it was announced that um, uh, a trio of minority shareholders are suing New Glarus Brewing Company and Deb Carey, their CEO, uh, for failing to meet fiduciary responsibilities, which is a fancy way of saying, hey, you guys didn't make as much profits for me as I'd like for you to. Um, and there's a whole bunch of shenanigans that are going on. But if you go and you read the story, you'll, you'll dig in a lot into some of the reactions there, but Deb Carey, again, who's the CEO and one of the founders of the company, she basically claim, claims that it comes largely down to a difference in desired business practices that the, these three were wanting them to do because she kept the brewery fully staffed during COVID instead of actually doing layoffs and sending the excess money to the investors. Now, I don't know how true that is or how false that is, but I will tell you right now, if you're the sort of person who's going to sue because you're not making enough money because they didn't fire people or let people go. I don't like you. And I think you're morally wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I can't really pick winners and losers here. Uh, I I'm looking forward to seeing how this one uh, shakes out because it seems like there are interesting points on both sides. Yeah. But at the same time, when the second people start talking about fiduciary responsibility, mm, that sort of twigs my radar. Um, <laughs> and 
so that that one, I mean, there's there's possibly some merit around, but there's also some other questions around. The other one I think is utterly absurd, absolutely patently absurd. And this is a brand new class action lawsuit that's been opened up against Boston Beer Company, aka Sam Adams, aka you know truly right. And it's been opened by one guy who bought four shares of stock earlier this year in multiple phases when it was at different prices. And he's suing them because he is claiming that they've lied or they lied about projections and the amount of money they were going to make based on hard seltzer sales. Now, remember, we had talked about this in the in past episodes, but Boston Beer now actually makes the vast majority of their money, vast majority of their money from the sales of truly hard seltzer and twisted tea, right? So those are their two main products and truly kind of took a bath in the second half of this year or started to take a bath where they've had excess inventory. They've had to do write-offs. They've all this other sort of stuff um, because nationally, and I know some people out there are rejoicing about this. There is a slowdown in what had been kind of that meteoric rise of seltzer where seltzer was growing 300% year over year. It's now slowed down in the last couple of quarters to dang near flat. Right. So yeah, uh, uh, yeah. stagnating. Too many uh, stagnating, too many brands on the market, too many, uh, too much competition for similar shelf space. So, and I'm even actually, by the way, seeing this reflected in my local grocery store where for the last two years, it was like seltzer took over half the beer case. And now it's kind of being slowly pushed back down to about a third. Um, but regardless, this guy who bought four shares of stock is claiming that Sam Adams, Boston beer lied about their projections. They, they tried to fool everybody that there was going to be, you know, meteoric rise in, in the truly brand, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just very interesting because again, four, four shares of stock class action lawsuit and a, I'm trying to think how best to put this a desire to write off a loss because of over exuberance. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it does, man. Okay. It's just very weird to me, but um, I think that besides the lawsuit, the good news to take away is, uh, or maybe good news, depending upon your, your taste and your predilections. Good news for me. Good news for Denny, uh, that seltzer sales are slowing down. Yay. It's not dead, but it's on life support. Well, I mean, to me, I think what's going to be interesting is it's always been the case. I mean, since I was a kid, at least in that whole RTD market. Yeah. So starting with, I mean, when I was a kid, what they they had those club can cocktails that were terrible. Uh, and you know, then Bartles and James wine coolers and various things that iterated over time. The RTD market always seems to eat itself. Right. And so now I'm curious because we're seeing a lot of canned cocktails coming back, ones that are actually good and not awful, uh, rising up. And I'm wondering if that's not going to cannibalize that seltzer market. So we'll see. Yeah, it might. And, and you know, and I don't expect to see seltzer going no. away by any means, but, uh, I, I think that, you know, the blush is off the rose, as they say, and, uh, that, Maybe what we're going to be doing is, well, I guess it's, it's obvious we're seeing the, uh, the end of the meteoric, uh, increase in sales and, uh, it's leveling out. And after that, there's only one place to go. Well, that's fine with me. Just as long as we don't, uh, just as long as the blush is still on the rose. <laughs> ooh, ooh, very good. Very good. Oh, I'm terrible. I should go to, I should go to joke jail for that one. All right. 
<laughs> All right. So that's two lawsuits. I think it's very interesting. Of course, I think anytime that you start to get investors involved and you start to get money involved and economic uh, times get tighter and shenanigans happen, you'll start to see some of these lawsuits. Uh, it's just the nature of the beast. Um, but let's go into the things that are actually celebratory, shall we? And talk a little bit about uh, GABF. Uh, GABF happened, at least the the competition, not the actual, you know, giant festival of, you know, too much beer. And I just wanted to give a shout out. We had, a, looking through the results, we had a number of people who have been on the show actually win medals at this year's JBF. Like Wild Bale won gold for their unfruited Bologna Vice, which is the, what they call their Vice, which is about half their beer sales now is fruited uh, Bologna Vice. And the uh, the vice without the fruit is actually a really fantastic beer, so go drink that one. Our good buddies at Ale Song got a gold for uh, Stone Fruit Symphony. Uh, Beachwood Brewing Company won silver for actually one of their cool ship beers. Uh, Allagash won for Shocker, their triple, and their wood beer. <laughs> Who would have called that? Right. Yeah. Uh, Rare Barrel won uh, one for their fruited sour. Uh, Radiant won gold for their juicy pale ale, and then Block Fifteen. Oddly enough, didn't win for something hoppy. They won gold for their alt beer, which man, and that just that just makes my mouth water. I I have to figure out how to get up there and get a hold of some of that. All right, and then Fair State, who we had on the last episode talking about the cryopop beer, they won uh, bronze for their Stranger in the Alps herb beer. Thank you for the big Lebowski reference. Um, <laughs> And Athletic actually won both silver and bronze for non-alcoholic beer. Uh, that's right. Non-alcoholic beer now actually has a, a seat at the table at JBF. And so Athletic won, which is not surprising to me. Their beers have been fantastic. Not at all. Uh, Breakside won gold for especially Belayner Vice. So there you go. Cool. Now, and very coolly, Allagash won Brewery of uh, – they have multiple tiers at the JBF now for uh, Brewery of the Year. And it used to be like – Brew pub of the year, small brewery, medium, large. Now it's split out by barrels produced. And so Allagash won for brewery of the year for the brewery between 15,000 to 100,000 barrels in size, which not a huge shocker, right? And it's Allagash. But even better, our friends at Radiant, I remember Cambria, Jonah, and Andrew that we talked to not too long ago on the show, just opened up in last November. They won... For the smallest brewery category, the zero to 250 barrels per year category. So excellent job by, by my friends down there at Radiant. And I'm very, very happy for them. So go check those out. Uh, lots of awards awarded because it is the JBF. Uh, and you know, sometimes it's also interesting to see what wins because sometimes it's not things you expect. Yeah. Who would have expected block 15 to win for an alt beer? I mean, again, they're one of those breweries that every single one of their beers is always really good, but. I bet you that alt beer must be really outstanding for them to have decided to enter it. Yeah, I mean, when I think of Block 15, I think of Sticky, right? Yeah, exactly. Sticky hands, man. Uh, just all all the hop-laden beers that they usually make. A little bit like Bale Breaker, where you usually think of the same thing, yet they make that killer Pilsner. Mm-hmm. So I love to see breweries who make really, really good beer branching out beyond their core because uh, when they do that, the other stuff will probably be really good also. Yep, absolutely. All right. And so that's GABF. And finally, one last topic to talk about here in the pub. Uh, this is going to be a little bit of a rant on my part, I guess. I don't know. Um, but in, the other day in uh, the BGCP Facebook groups, there were lots of discussion about 
computerizing exams, right? And you know, so there are a couple of groups out there that are trying to computerize the actual judging process. So, you know, like there are a couple of companies down in like Mexico and Latin and South America that are doing sort of computerized uh, web software. I think you used one, didn't you? Yeah. Um, I got to judge uh, at a competition in Mexico using a computer and uh, admittedly they had some technical issues, but when it was working, it was great. Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually the judging part was really good. I felt like I could probably do a better job than if I was handwriting. And so I don't know about you or you guys out in the audience or you girls out in the audience. uh, I don't write anything anymore. I think the only thing I ever write now is a check. And I only do that twice a month. And, you know, you can tell by my handwriting. My handwriting is awful. And, you know, it gives doctors a run for their money. But um, it also means that trying to handwrite something for a steady period of time is actually really hard on my hands, too, because I just don't have that motor skill anymore. Um, and so there was a discussion on the BGCV group about, you know, oh, we, sh- we should find a way to computerize exams because so many people nowadays are way more type focused, right? You know, use a keyboard. Like I can close my eyes and go hit this computer keyboard and type something damn near perfectly. Um, we should focus on trying to computerize the exams. And a lot of people were for it, but the biggest argument against it was people going, Oh, well, you have to find some way to make it so that people can't cheat. You know, they might cheat on the BJSP exam to which my response was. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, I thought that uh, you really had some good points about that. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's like, what do we really want for our judges, right? You know, it, I mean, what, there's 8,000 BJCP certified judges, something like that, in uh, around the world? It's not a very big pool of people. Do Are are, are we as an organization, are we as a hobby, as a, as a group, are we concerned about the idea that people are going to cheat their way onto the exam to get into the untold riches and glory that is homebrew judging. Um, <laughs> yeah. you, know? you know, and until, until you brought this point up, I was, I was kind of like all those other people go, well, what, what if they cheat using it? And then, you know, you made me think it's only the freaking BJCP exam. <laughs> it's, it's no big deal. Right. So to me, there's no great, prospect or value or win to, to cheating. Right. I mean, particularly if some, if you still keep the questions the same where, you know, really what you're trying to do is you want to understand like how well somebody can taste things and also how well somebody knows some of the, the history and the mechanics and can kind of tell you, okay, Hey, here's the difference between an IPA and a pale ale. Right. That's really what you want out of the BJCP judge. But there, there's just some of, some of these groups that or some of these people who just, they, they just take it so seriously. And again, my point is it's beer judging. It's not, yeah, it's not the law. Yeah. It's not, you know, if if we get a beer judge in there that gives a, a score of a 32 as opposed to a 38, nobody's dying. Nobody's making more money. Nobody's losing money. So to me, it just figure out a way to put the damn thing on a computer. Yeah, I mean, you know, whatever. It, it's not a bad idea. Uh, I took my test many, many years ago and spent four or five hours writing whatever it was. Uh, I made it, I made it through. Uh, but yeah, put the test on a computer. What's the big deal? Yeah. And while we're at it, get rid of all the stupid memorizing OGs and VUs or at least regurg, yeah, or at least regurgitating I, them. I, I find that moderately helpful. Yeah. I did that when I took my exam after 20 years. I still remember about half of them. So. 
you know, whatever. It's one of those things that uh, I don't know how valuable it really is because when you judge, you're sitting there for the copy of the guidelines anyway. And so if you're into doing that, then just memorize that stuff on your own. There you go. And as always, we invite your feedback on this sort of stuff. What do you think? Should the BJSP exam be computerized? Does it actually matter if somebody cheats on the BJSP exam? Is there some sort of uh, uh, hill of honor that we need to die on here? Uh, let me know. Podcast, yeah. at, uh, podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You know how to go. All right. I think it's time for us to finish up these beers and go talk about some reading. All right. When we come back, we'll be over in the library talking about some stuff that we've read. Stick around. Does your fermenter need to have Wi-Fi? Not necessarily, but is a Wi-Fi-enabled fermenter incredibly useful? You bet. Using the Grainfather app, brewers can monitor and adjust fermentation from anywhere in the world, a feature that could come in handy if you want to start a diacetyl rest while sipping an umbrella drink on the beach. The new and improved Grainfather Conical Fermenter Pro is constructed from 304 stainless steel and has a total work capacity of 8 gallons, making it just the right size for your 5-gallon batches with plenty of headspace. A 1.5-inch tri-clamp on the lid allows up to 2 PSI of top pressure for work transfers, and the 2-inch tri-clamp port on the bottom of the cone makes tube dumps a snap. Particularly nifty is the dual function valve that lets you transfer and sample beer or pull yeast using the same valve. The integrated 12-volt, 30-watt heating element makes it easy to gently warm your fermenter, while a built-in cooling sleeve only needs to be connected to an optional chiller to get the temperature down. The new and improved Grainfather Conical Fermenter Pro is available now at grainfather.com or at a homebrew shop near you. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. Welcome back and welcome to the library. We're here. We're surrounded by books. It smells musty. Uh, oh, wait a minute. That's just Drew. Um, and we're going to be talking about a couple things that we've read. And I'll let Drew kick it off with a 9,000-year-old Chinese story. Yeah. So I've talked in the past on, on the show about kind of my love of archaeology and sort of trying to understand what people have done in the past. And, you know. Uh, obviously, I'm the sort of nerd who still watches Time Team because it's enjoyable. And by the way, Time Team is launching a YouTube channel that's going to show new new episodes that they're filming this year. So yay, uh, if you're interested in that. But Ars Technica actually uh, just had a story on there about, uh, they said here, the world's oldest painted pottery may have been for drinking beer at a funeral. It's a 9,000-year-old burial area in China. 
And what I thought was interesting is that they found a number of ceramic vessels and pots, and they were kind of, uh, some of the pottery was uh, shaped like vessels that were later used and made out of bronze for drinking. And so they went and they did sort of your archaeo uh, chemistry on it to go and figure out, okay, what's actually attached to the interiors of these pots. And they found residue in eight of 13 pots that were things like, uh, fossilized rice remains, tubers, uh, a millet called uh, Job's tears, you know, and that they had been heated and fermented and, you know, had like mold in there, like an aspergillus type thing and yeast. So it's just very interesting to me to see that beer, as we've always argued, is a very fundamental part of humanity. And we now see this 9,000 years ago back in China. And of course, it also really points out that back in the day, uh, people were a little less fussy about what they, what went into their various alcoholic beverages. <laughs> yeah, a lot of things. Yeah. So it's like, hey, what do we have on hand? Uh, and I did think it was interesting because they said in, in the article that at the time, part of the reason why they think this was a special brew is at the time that rice was actually considered a luxury grain. And, and they're, wow, that's they're interesting. In so, which also shows how things change over time, right? I mean, we consider rice to be a staple. Um, and so just very, very interesting to read and see what people were doing back in the day. Now, of course, also part of me is like going, hmm. Huh, could I recreate something like that? Well, yes, I think I could. <laughs> yeah, if you wanted to. Yep. Well, and particularly, I think the other interesting part was just also talking about, oh, hey, you know, they're actually also using mold in in their process. So I'd be curious to go and read and see if that's not somehow related to like aspergillus, like how you see nowadays with like sake manufacturing. Yeah, koji. Yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. If you want to learn more about 9,000-year-old Chinese funerary beer, Go check the show notes for the link. Yep. The uh, the other story I want to tell you about is one that is titled How One Irishman's Ginger Beard Helped Launch an Entirely Bogus Style of Beer. Yeah. And we're talking we're talking Irish red here. And it's a it's a really interesting, funny, and convoluted story. So we're just gonna hit a couple of the high points. Well, and, and first but, we should uh, say this is from a Zythophile. Which is the blog written by uh, Martin Cornell, who is a notorious crank and beer historian who actually digs into the history. Yeah, he uh, he meticulously researches things. So I've come to the conclusion that if Martin says it, I believe it. So basically what it comes down to is a brewery in France was trying to come up with a new kind of beer to brew. So they started going out and looking around and seeing if uh, there was some other brewery making a beer that they could uh, kind of latch on to and, and take back and brew themselves. And uh, they ended up going to Ireland, running into this guy named George Killian, and uh, taking taking his idea for a beer. There's a, a picture here, too, of George Killian doing mm. it. It has gone through many, many iterations of many people uh, – when you go out and buy one of the uh, Killian's Irish Reds these days, it is nothing like the way it originally started, either from uh, from George Killian or from the French brewery. But, you know, <laughs> they figured he looked the part. He had this big red beard. He, you know, had looked like your, your stereotypical Irish guy. So that's where it all came from. Right. And it's very interesting because, I mean, again, you go and you dig down into – into what Martin's writing in here. And, you know, 
again, it just points out the fact that like some of the stuff that we think of as beer styles and some of the stuff that we think of as beer history and beer stories are full of it. Uh, and Irish red. Well, I mean, you know, it, it, to me, it also points out that any kind of beer style is kind of an artificial construct. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and generally an artificial construct, uh, overlaid on to marketing concerns, which is exactly what happened yeah, here. With, exactly. Which is exactly what happened with Irish red ale. And Martin Gosserin is basically like, again, you know, we have kind of this weird association here in America amongst beer lovers of like all these various, you know, different local styles, right? So, uh, Irish, uh, Irish red ale or Irish cream ale or, or this, or like the Scottish sixties and seventies shillings. And if you go and you look and, you know, reading through like Martin's notes and Ron's notes, uh, things they found in breweries over the years, you know, really all of those groups were brewing just a different name to bitter or a different name to a porter or something like that. And, you know, not really distinct styles as much as just, oh, well, that's the stuff they brew there. And Irish Red, though, it really did just kind of become a a French beer launched, marketed with an Irishman that then became a style here in the U.S. despite not really existing in Ireland. Yeah, and the beer that it uh, originally came from uh, was a, a strong beer, yeah. uh, Let's Strong Beer. And uh, so, so they kind of like – went out, found this beer, they found an image, then they kind of adjusted the beer, and through many, many years, uh, the uh, beer has been passed down and changed over and over again. And in 1981, Coors launched their own version of it, which was about as different from the original as you could possibly imagine. Yeah, so very interesting read, and of course, as always, you're going to learn a lot just from uh, reading through Martin's writings, and... <laughs> Trust me, the man digs deep. Yeah, we'll we'll put a link to the article at experimentalbrew.com because you guys need to read it for yourself to get a better explanation than what we were able to do. But it it is really, really fascinating and fun. Yep, there you go. And that's the things that we've been reading this week. If, As always, if you have stories out there or things to read, uh, hit us up. There's some new stuff coming down the pike that we know about. But what have you been reading? Let us know, and we're gonna have, uh, we'll do some investigation. Yeah, well, maybe at least at least we'll uh, chuckle along with you. There you go. Time to head to the brewery now, huh? Yep, let's brew some stuff. All right, we won't be brewing, but we'll be talking about uh, something that seems totally off the wall. <laughs> so stick around, and uh, we'll be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com.
we've moved over here to the brewery, and we're going to tell you about a story that when I first heard it, I was ready to laugh and go, come on, give me a break. But when I heard who's doing it, my attitude changed completely. Right. And so this is our good buddy, Mike Karnowski, who, of course, has been here on the show, uh, owner, founder, brewer, chief bottle washer of um, Zebulon Artisanal Ales out there in Asheville, North Carolina. And he does a lot of very strange things We and some very good things. Like we had just talked about him doing his whole show on uh, uh, the, the or a whole seminar with Vinny and Mitch and a whole bunch of others talking about historical IPAs over time and breaking them down, including making, uh, what was it, a six-pack or an eight-pack of uh, IPAs for everybody to taste? Oh, yeah, the the historical IPAs we talked about recently. Yeah. Yeah. So Mike obviously does a lot of playing around. He also does a lot of stuff kind of tied in with music. If you go and you actually watch the Zebulon uh, social media feed, you'll see that a lot of his beers are named named after or inspired by musical performers or songs. And so Mike has talked about his newest project where uh, he was thinking about dedicating a beer to Eddie Van Halen, right, who passed away last year. And he jokingly said that they could throw cigarettes in because Eddie smoked a lot, which is what eventually got him. Um, and this is what I think is really weird and like why sometimes reading outside your field is kind of cool. He said at the same time that he was thinking this, he was researching the curing of cannabis, marijuana, in ethnic communities. And he took what he learned from that and also tobacco curing, because again, he's in North Carolina, and decided to do the same thing to wet hops. So nice fresh hops just off the vine, not dried or not really dried, uh, but you know, dried about 80% of residual and then vacuum sealed to remove any oxygen to stop molding. Uh, and then doing a hot sweat of those hops for 24 hours at between 105 and 110 degrees Fahrenheit. And so he just put in another uh, dehydrate, uh, dehydrate setting. Um, and then you allow the, the hops to ferment at room temperature for so 70 to 80 degrees for a week. And then after that, you open up the bags and dry the hops down to typical uh, residual moisture, so about 10%. Um, and he, he says he's not exactly sure what's happening in the ferment, like thinking like enzymatic breakdown and other, other sort of processes. He says opening them up, the aroma is absolutely fascinating. When it started as cascade, it now smells like dried fruit, raisin bread, straight up chewing tobacco and no sign of any moldy or mildewing notes. And so now he's going to put that into a Dutch oat brown ale to allow the hops to shine in, in, in their new characteristics. I read this and I know you said you laughed. <laughs> yeah, man. It's like, Oh, come on. And then I thought, you know, if it was anybody, but Mike, I would just be totally skeptical about this, but Mike has all these seemingly crazy ideas that always seem to work out. So I, I am really, really fascinated by this concept. It's nothing I'm going to be trying, but if I had a chance, I would definitely try the beer. Well, I mean, if I had, if I had loose, fresh hops sitting around, I mean, I, I'd give it a try just to see what the hell happens. But to me, it's just very interesting to see how that's, that as a process is so radically different than what we do with hops today. You know, because I mean, you said, was it the Yakima Chiefs doing now with a, a, is it hotter and shorter for their carrying process? Oh, oh, uh, yeah. I mean, well, 
what they've been doing for quite a while uh, was doing like maybe three or four hours around 130, 135 degrees. Uh, they now have software so that they can sense the moisture content in the hops and start reducing the temperature uh, as they dry. But yeah, you know, it's kind of the same thing except for the ferment. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm really curious. I, I'm, I'm going to try and reach out to Mike and see if I can get some more notes on exactly what he's doing there. And again, for most homebrewers, that's probably radically impractical. Although, actually, if you're a homebrewer with your own hop plants, and typically you end up with a lot of hops, you might you might be able to do something like that with a couple of your your pounds of hops and get something interesting out of it other than just, hey, I made some Cascade. <laughs> I'd want to try a beer made with them before I went to the trouble of trying it myself. Well, but I mean, the good thing is it doesn't really seem like it's like that much trouble, right? You know? You know, vacuum seal it and run it in a dehydrator for a couple of days. That's the most complicated bit. Uh, maybe. So, anyway, that, that that's something fun from Mike Karnowski and a different way of thinking about aging hops. Obviously, there are a lot of people out there who tried to do force aging of hops for uh, mixed culture beers, sour beers. Uh, but this is a completely different take on the idea of how to age hops. So, good on you, Mike, for being a weirdo. Love you. <laughs> yeah, man. Keep those crazy ideas coming because you know how to make them work. And then in the other news that has come out just recently, so uh, Omega Yeast has been doing a lot of fun stuff recently. And, you know, obviously they've also been playing around a lot with uh, quike strains and all that sort of fun stuff. They have their Lutra strain, which is what they've always talked about is like their ultra clean uh, Lutra or sorry, their ultra clean quike. And they have now actually gone to made commercial dried versions of their Lutra Quike. So it's very cool. I mean, obviously people have been talking a lot about like, oh, you know, you can, you know, it's very easy for you to do dried Quike. You know, that's exactly what they do in Norway. People have been putting on like parchment paper in their ovens and allowing it to dehydrate and that sort of stuff. So not surprising that somebody's going to go and do uh, a dried Quike, but they are the first ones to actually do a dried Quike here in the U.S., uh, and so very, uh, very, very interesting. Uh, Lutra is only, uh, only a year old now. And now it's, uh, it's become sort of one of their mainstays and is now also dried, which, Hey, nice and convenient. Yeah, it is, man. If, if that's your thing, then there you go. Makes it easier to use. Yep. So th- that should be available to you uh, wherever, uh, wherever you can find Omega. We'll include a link to it so you can go track it down. But I do think it's uh, interesting to see that uh, somebody's actually uh, commercialized the dried, uh, uh, the, the drying of Quake. So there you go. Ta-da. All right, man. All right. So that's t- that's it for the brewery. Uh, I think it's time for us to you know answer some questions. Yeah, let's go do some Q and A, and then get the heck out of here and let people get on with things. So stick around. We're gonna be right back. New seasons bring new brewing adventures with Yeast's Belgian Summer Private Collection, featuring 3463 Forbidden Fruit, 3942 Belgian Wheat, and 5151 Britannomyces Clasenae. These premium liquid yeast strains bring you the opportunity to enhance your skills and elevate your experimental side. The dynamic fruitiness, spicy phenolics, and complex esters balance well with the malts, hops, and specialty ingredients of Belgian styles. For an adventurous twist, add seasonal fruit and berries. 
Or try Brett C. with its tropical tartness in your next creative fermentation. These strains are available now through the end of September. Visit yeastlab.com for homebrewing recipes, tips, and more about which styles pair best with these strains. going to get into the Q&A now before we wrap things up. So, Drew, take it. All right. And so we have a couple of questions, actually, that were posted on our website. Don't forget, you can always post questions at experimentalbrew.com, uh, either as a forum topic or as a comment somewhere, and I promise you we'll pay more attention to those. So here are a couple that came off the, the website. Samuel from the website had said, Hi, Danny Drew. I was listening to one of your podcasts the, the other day, and Denny, you were talking about BRY97 and how much you liked it. How do you think it would work in a black IPA? Well, <laughs> let me preface this by saying I am not a black IPA fan in the least. I find that the, the kind of like acrid dark malts uh, clash with the hops for my tastes. That said, I think it would work just about as well as anything else. Although I have to say that if I was going to make a black IPA, I think I would generally lean towards something more like 1450 mm. because it might kind of mellow out some of that sharpness from the uh, from the dark malts and hops. Shocker. Um, <laughs> by the way, I also... Well, you know, I, I mean, I think BRY97 work well. Pretty much my favorite yeast for IPA or anything in that kind of line. Uh, so I think you'd be fine with it. But again... Based on my tastes and my perception of black IPA, I would rather have something that would mellow it out a little bit more, and I think 1450 would be better at doing that. So it just kind of depends on what you're after. Yep. And I actually just got my hands on a couple of packets of it so I can finally try it. It was not available locally to me, so I had to go. Oh, well, really? You couldn't get BRY97 locally? Nope. Well, that's it, too bad. And, and by the way, no, nobody, nobody carries Diamond Lager around me either, so... So, so LA is just not a Lollamand area, huh? Uh, no, no, we're kind of a, a SAF, I think. Yeah, well, you know, and, and that's a lot of people are like that. You know, it, it's a shame because uh, as good as like all those SAF ale things are, the fermentous yeasts, mm -hmm. um, they're so ubiquitous that people miss out on a lot of other stuff. Yep. So, you know, if, if you're a USO5 user and you have a chance to get your hands on some BRY97, I suggest you do it and you compare the two and see what you like better. Yeah. Same thing with uh, 3470 versus Diamond Lager. Split a batch, put a pack in each. I mean, that's dry yeast. It's cheap. See which one you like better. That's what it's all about. This is home brewing. You get to make the beer that you like. There you go. All right. And our second question is also going to come for you. And oddly enough, it... Seems to favor another one of your yeast strains again. Uh, John Barnett writes in, he says, I have a cider with Y-Yeast 1450 nearing the end of fermentation. I was considering harvesting the yeast, but I'm curious what flavors a cider yeast cake 
may impart to a wiry IPA or any other next generation ferment. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't think you need to worry about the flavors very much. I don't think that that would really be an issue, but I think that you would need to worry about yeast health because there just aren't the nutrients in a cider fermentation that there are in a beer fermentation. So I just don't know how healthy that yeast would be. Uh, I think at the very least, what I would do is just use some of it and make a new starter. Then you know that you're going to be having healthy yeast. I would be a little bit hesitant to directly pitch the slurry from a cider into a beer, but that's all based on supposition, not experience. Yeah, that would that would be my concern as well. But I, yeah, I don't think in general you're going to get much of a cider flavor impact. I don't think you're going to want to stretch that yeast strain more than you know a generation or two past. But um, no, just if you're if you're worried about it, I would just go ahead and uh, make a little bit of a starter with some of the slurry and, and see if you can't grow up some more healthy yeast. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And our last question comes from Erica Hera, uh, who put it on our website. She says, so I'm developing a recipe for a ginger spice gingerbread mead. I'm trying to bring the flavors together a bit more, if that makes sense. I want to add a sort of mellower cake-like quality that will bring the spice flavors together and make them less harsh. It still needs to age a bit, and the alcohol burn is still fairly strong. This is a very strongly flavored mead. I used buckwheat honey, whole cloves, cinnamon stick, fresh ginger, and vanilla bean. I added a bit of molasses in the secondary to back sweeten. It tastes good, but it's just not quite what I was hoping to achieve. A brewer I met suggested adding crushed graham crackers to my secondary, but I'm a bit dubious on that. Yeah, good on you, Erica. <laughs> Any suggestions are welcome. Yeah, agree on the dubious nature of that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. N- number one, do not use crushed graham crackers in secondary. Yeah, because the problem, of course, is you're going to be introducing a lot of starch without any real conversion happening of that starch to sugar, and therefore you've got a lot of uh, places for things to go wrong from a microbiological point of view. Um, and not only that, you wouldn't get what you're looking for anyway. Yeah. So if you really, really, really want to try graham cracker as a flavoring, they do make graham cracker flavorings. So uh, you can go and buy one of those and try that. Um, I also will agree that ginger as a uh, spice character in a mead is incredibly potent. I once made a ginger mead based off of uh, Charlie Papazian's recipe when I first started homebrewing that it took damn near six years for it to get to be drinkable because it was just that gingery. And I like ginger. I love ginger. And that was too much ginger. So if you wanted to mellow it out and get more cake-like characteristics to me, I'm trying to think. You said you added molasses. The problem is molasses is going to fight you in terms of getting kind of a softer character just from the smokiness of it. Um, but you said buckwheat honey, whole cloves, cinnamon, ginger, and vanilla. If you wanted it to be softer and more cake-like, I would probably actually add more vanilla. Uh, now that's not, that's a good idea. Yeah. You know, because the vanilla is going to add aromatics. It's going to add a perceived sweetness to it. And let's face it. Most baked goods in America smell like vanilla for a good reason. And so I think the vanilla would actually help sort of distance some of that, uh, that harsher character that you're going to get and give you a slightly more cake like character. So more vanilla. If you want to try ginger, uh, if you want to try graham crackers, do the, the graham cracker extract. I would probably also just give it some time. I had a kind of off the wall idea. Okay. 
What about maltodextrin? Oh, uh, to kind of to kind of give it a thicker uh, a thicker back end. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I mean, you know, or, or, or lactose. Although I don't, you may need to like boil the lactose. Maltodextrin, I think you could just add directly. But well, I think that uh, you know, the, the those are thing. the two things that the, those are the two things that jumped into my head as a way to kind of take the edge off, which seems to be what really she wants to do. Yeah, and of course you can always try those just in a glass. Yeah. Right. That's the other thing I was going to suggest. Uh, like, like the graham cracker concept. You know what I would say? Eat a graham cracker while you drink a glass of it. There you go. Why not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I, I think that that would work way better than putting graham crackers in the secondary. Uh, yeah, well, yes, it will definitely work way better than that. But that's also very much in your uh, in your line of thought of uh, drink a beer and smoke a joint. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's a good idea. Were you done yet? <laughs> Almost. <laughs> okay. So speaking of, speaking of which, the, remember earlier in the episode we had said that uh, part of the theme for today was going to be paying attention. Well, uh, on the quick tip, we also get into some paying attention. I'll give you my first little bit of this. We had the dickens of a time trying to get this re- podcast recording started because my levels were low. Couldn't figure it out. <laughs> Look, looking at my, looking at all the dials and the switches and all the, the, the gigas and why is this not working? And suddenly realized that, uh, the, the clean lady had come through the other day and had pressed my speaker up against my cough mute button. And that's what was causing his issues. <laughs> Yeah, pay, yeah and I spent attention. an hour freaking out, thinking there was something wrong with my setup. Yeah, pay attention, uh, and that also plays into what you're going to talk about. Yeah, it, it does. Uh, I was uh, my last couple brews. I've ended up with like way, way too much wort in the kettle, and I've had to do long boils. I may have even mentioned that it's like uh, the last one I did. I had to boil for an extra four hours to get it boiled down to uh, the amount and the gravity that it was supposed to be. After uh, conferring with uh, my friends at Grainfather, I discovered that I had uh, overzealously made a wrong entry in the equipment profile uh, for my G70 that I was using. I had been glancing through it. They had put out a software update. I thought I'd go through it and see what it was doing. And I came to the, uh, the, set, the uh, setting for uh, absorption. Yeah, I thought, oh, there's nothing there. I better enter that in. Unfortunately, I wasn't paying attention, and what I entered the absorption into was sparge absorption, which should be zero, but it wasn't. So consequently, for several brews after I did that, I was ending up with three or four gallons too much wort, uh, you know, and I knew something was wrong because normally I had been using around five gallons of sparge water, and suddenly it had jumped up to eight or nine, and Something was wrong, and uh, unfortunately, I, I didn't see it, but uh, Sam at Grandfather did, and uh, he, he clued me in. Uh, I set that back down, and everything is now working as it should be again. So I guess, number one, make sure that you're entering the correct equipment profile for your equipment when you're using brewing software. And number two, pay attention. Yes. Absolutely pay attention, people. This is what happens. Yeah, yeah. Really. All right. And, of course, that's our quick tip. Uh, now it's time for something other than beer. And, of course, because there's always time for something other than beer, uh, we got two recommendations for you today. Uh, one, a YouTube channel, and one, a brand-new show that's streaming on Hulu. Denny, you want to kick that one off? Yeah. Um, there was a lot of publicity for Only Murders in the Building when it first started up. 
because it stars Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez, and a, a ton of cameos by people you'll recognize. It's a really fun show, and I'm finding that as it goes on, it just gets weirder and more interesting. Uh, if you have Hulu, then I would highly recommend you check it out. It's uh, a very interesting and fun show. Uh, it's it's not the outlandish comedy you might expect from Steve Martin and Martin Short, although there are moments of that. But uh, it, it's really basically a murder mystery kind of thing with uh, a little bit of backstory on the characters. It adds a little pathos to it. Well, and, and of course, it's also poking fun at everybody's fascination with true crime and podcasts. And, and podcasts, and, yeah. And the, the thing is, I'm I'm still not very deep into the show yet, but I've been loving it. Uh, what I've seen because you have such perfect modulation between those three, between Martin short, Steve Martin and, and Selena Gomez, where Martin short is an absolute craze ball. I mean, he, he, yeah. he, he's got that Martin short mania uh, attached to him. And then you've got Steve Martin kind of riding in on that sort of, you know, sort of medium level of mania and just kind of like the, Oh God, you know, the sort of thing that he can do. And then you got Selena Gomez, who's there as like the Gen Z or millennial, just over it all, flat affect, you know, almost serving as like a, a, a reflecting board in a way for those two. So it's it's actually a really interesting mix between the three of them. So <laughs> highly recommended. Yeah, you know, and and I didn't really expect a lot out of Selena Gomez, uh, and she's really good. Well, I mean, she has been acting since she was a kid, so she's got time. Well, time I know, I know. But uh, but yeah, that's only murders in the building on Hulu, and the good news that just came out this week is it's been renewed for season two. So oh, cool! There will be a second season of it as well. It'll be curious to see. All right, and then YouTube, real quick. Uh, I I know this guy's been around for a while, but I just glommed onto him recently. There is a YouTube channel out there with something like fifteen hundred videos on it by a guy named the Lock Picking Lawyer. And he is literally a lawyer who's in Maryland who his hobby is picking locks. And each of these videos is like, you know, I think the longest video I've seen from him is 10 minutes. They're usually like two or three minutes are him showing off some new lock that he's got for his collection. And then him showing how easily you can defeat it, you know, whether via picking or via using an electromagnet or something. He's, he's very much into the, into the fine art of non-destructive uh, non-destructive entry uh, tactics. And it's really eye-opening because you'll see it like he gets some of these locks from like, say, Master Lock or any of the things that you could buy at Home Depot. And he's got them picked open in like 10 seconds. Or they're... Or, <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, or they're, they're subject to rake attacks or jiggle attacks or something like that. And so it's just like, oh, all right. But again, he's got a very calm voice. You never see his face. Uh, you only ever see his hands. And he's got a very calm voice and a very sort of methodical delivery to everything. And it's just very soothing in a way. Uh, but it's also very fascinating for what you can learn about how fast you can pick through most locks. Uh, so, again, that's the Lock Picking Lawyer on YouTube. Cool, man. I, I may check that out. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's not, it's not a huge investment either. So go go and watch it. Yeah, right. Well, you know, it's like I have so many things in my list to watch that I forget what I'm going to watch anyway. All right, let's get out of here. All righty. Thank you for listening to Experimental Brewing. 
You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram, wherever else Drew can think of to put us. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes, experiments, or rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And if you want to get a hold of each of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, you can always give us a call, leave us a voicemail, shoot us a text at 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.